The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jonathan Busfield. I'm here with my co-host, John Cuna. Today, we'll be discussing Brandon Marshall. So there are two Brandon Marshalls in the NFL, uh, or that I think one's still in the NFL. The Brandon Marshall we're talking about was a wide receiver who played in the NFL for quite a long time. There's another Brandon Marshall who's a linebacker. I think he still plays for the Broncos. Mm -hmm. Um, Not the same Brandon Marshall, so I want want to make sure we clarify that. Um, so, I mean, the main reason why we chose Brandon Marshall as an athlete to focus on is that he's just very open and passionate about mental health. And yeah. I think he, he's been very outspoken, um, you know, since I want to say around 2011 uh, was when his mental health kind of journey became public. And he's been very open about it in terms of his, uh, being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder uh, and what that entailed from his own perspective and his experience. And I think it has sent him on a trajectory um, you know, to really, to really uh, spread the word about the importance of mental health in different ways. Um, so that's why we wanted to focus on him. So just a quick bio. He's an American uh, former football wide receiver who played 13 seasons in the NFL, played college football at UCF, uh, that's Central Florida, and was drafted by the Denver Broncos in the fourth round of the 2006 NFL draft. He's also played for the Dolphins, Bears, Jets, Giants, and Seahawks. He currently appears as a co-host on FS1's morning show called First Things First and as a co-host on Showtime's Inside the NFL. And he also started a podcast called I Am Athlete mm. uh, last year. So busy guy. Busy uh, guy. He, I remember towards the end of his NFL career, I think he had already started doing some of those um, yeah. co-hosting gigs. Yep. So he was you know, playing and then hit, you know, uh, hopping on a jet to go do the, uh, you know, be the co-host of those shows. So he was already overlapping things, which kind of reminds me of Justin Forsett a little bit, because we talked about how, you know, some athletes do better than others with regard to kind of setting up their next phase of life and, and, you know, reading the tea leaves, understanding that, you know, once your career is over, you have to have another purpose. You have to have other passions in order to be in a good place. So he's someone who, during his NFL career, his mental health challenges really came to the surface, mm-hmm. but has clearly done a great job on his own mental health and helping others and set himself up for a, a very seamless transition for life after football because mm-hmm. he got gotten some of those things started way ahead of time. So a couple interesting facts to, uh, to mention about Brandon Marshall. In 2009, he actually set an NFL record for receptions in a game with 21. I did not know that. Me either. Uh, he has 12,351 career receiving yards, which are the most ever by a receiver who has never played in the postseason. He did track in high school. Let's Johnny, go. Johnny, your yeah. boy. Let's go. Uh, triple jump, long jump, and high jump. He won the triple jump uh, in, in high school, I think maybe at the States, and then came in second in the high jump. So mm-hmm. obviously like an all-around like athlete. Mm-hmm. And not just an athlete. He was selected to the all uh, CUSA team as a scholar athlete while at UCF. So mm. clearly a you know, very intelligent guy as well, which, I mean, if you hear him talk, you can just tell. Incredibly articulate. He's very articulate yeah. and, and clearly very smart. 
um, and you know knows what he's doing. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think he has a he seems to have a business sense too. I think it's pretty it's pretty cool. I enjoy listening to him talk uh, for a lot of different reasons, not just because I'm a fan of of, uh, of football. Uh, but because he's just, you know, he has kind of, uh, you know, his feet in some really cool projects that yeah. he's doing. Um, and it's just great to see. So um, his chair, we always try to focus on a, uh, you know, some kind of charitable organization that the player supports. His, I believe, is Project 375. Um, I went to the website project375.org and it wasn't really functioning properly. I don't know mm. if that was my computer or temporary. I put it in there just in case in the show notes. As a link, I also put a link to their Facebook page, which was functional. Cool. Uh, and there's a you know a button to donate in case anyone wants to look into that. And that is about helping people with regard to mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll get into our takeaways about the player. I think I'll start with one. You know, one main takeaway that just kind of a one-off that popped into my head as I was reading this is just that you know money and a change of scenery is not a solution for mental health. You know, he was traded. He started to have some issues with regard to his his mental health and, and functioning when he was in Denver while on the Broncos. And he was traded to Miami. I think part of the reason he was traded, you know, he had some issues with Josh McDaniels, who was the head coach of the Broncos at the time. He's, he's now, you know, he's been an uh, assistant or the offensive coordinator for the Patriots for a long time. So we know, we know well, uh, mm-hmm. we know a lot about Josh McDaniels. But um, I don't think they were getting along all that well. Uh, I think Brandon Marshall, well, he says that he wanted some recognition from the Broncos by signing him to a long-term deal and then re- reflects on it now saying, I understand why they didn't. Right. Um, you know, I was I was struggling and wasn't being honest with myself about that. Mm-hmm. So they, the Broncos traded him to Miami. He signed a contract of five years and $50 million. And on the surface, you'd think $50 million going to South Beach, what could be wrong with life, right? right? And I think we see this a lot with I know I do with with some of the young guys I work with who think, especially when they're college or they're or maybe post college, they're having some some issues with their career and things like that. They often think that if they have more money or they could just like, I'll just move out west. You know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll I don't like Massachusetts. I'll just go to California and everything will be fine. And I think that kind of escapism is something that is very tempting for people. Like either the money will help me escape, or the or the change of scenery will help me escape. And you go there and you're still the same person. Mm-hmm. And I think people trying to run away from who they are need to recognize that that's that might give you a temporary kind yep. of distraction but it's not going to change what's going on so yeah it's um, just another avoidance tactic and it doesn't mean just if you get a lot of money or you leave somewhere that all the stuff that's still in your head it's, it's coming with you exactly so, exactly <laughs> it's not going anywhere. exactly it's gonna it's gonna resurface at some point so yep. that was one takeaway i had um what about you john yeah i think one thing that you make is that that's a good point because I, th- I hear this a lot and i think um about like money and scenery like what do they have to like what do they have to complain about and i think that it's definitely one of those things where it just increases a barrier for people yeah. seeking help because they're like well you've got 50 million dollars and you're living in south beach and gorgeous weather and you're doing what you love what do you have to complain about and i think people hear about that or athletes specifically or you know people who are struggling hear that and they're like well maybe they're right Right. Maybe that maybe I should be able to deal with this on themselves. They're already sort of going up against the stigma for for guys, especially. And again, for black males as well of like seeking treatment. And you're just layering in all these barriers and barriers and barriers to be able to seek treatment. And it's it's been it's it's difficult to watch. And and Brandon talks a lot about that of like overcoming some of those things. And we finally did. It now has led him to what you were talking about, like his purpose, like his new purpose of being an advocate for mental health and raising awareness and helping people. And he's been, I mean, he's all, all yeah. over the place doing that. And that was same with me. Um, obviously biased of like someone doing the work as well, but mm-hmm. that was definitely the biggest standing out for me of like him being able to, and you mentioned this too, like transitioning from one purpose 
And he talks about like football being the platform, but his purpose being helping other people. And I thought that was a really great way I to kind that. of see yeah, that. Yeah. And that was a that was a that was one of the quotes that really stood out to totally. me. Um, because I think that's absolutely true. And yep. he's been able to, like Justin Forsett, make that transition from like this was a, something that I did that I loved, and now here's what I'm doing because it feels like this is fulfilling my purpose. And I think that that's a really cool way. And he's sort of like a model, not necessarily that you have to have mental illness to be able to go through that transition. But I think that he provides another really beneficial model for other athletes to look up to of like, here's somebody who transitioned away from the game in a really appropriate way and pursued something in, in Brandon's case, it happens to be mental health yeah, awareness, but yeah. for other people it might be something completely different, but he set the stage and the formula for how to do that. I think that's really that legacy I think will be really impactful for people that, that follow him. Yeah, totally. And I think, um, I love that, that, you know, football is my platform, not my purpose. That was a great quote. Yeah. Um, really well said. And I, and I definitely latched onto that as well. And I think, you know, he, he's someone I didn't even realize, you know, I feel like we owe him an apology. I didn't realize until doing the research for this that, you know, based on the timeline in 2011, I didn't realize it was that long ago when this, and he first started talking about mental health. He's one of the first kind of athletes to really do it. I think it made me think of, we did that episode on Shamiqua Holdsclaw and adjustment. And in that episode, we talked about Meta World Peace, who used to be uh, mm -hmm. called Ron Artest being one of the first people because he um, kind of grew up in the same area as Shamiqua Holtzclaw and mm -hmm. kind of had some funny quotes about her. Yeah. And he, I want to say around two, somewhere in 2008 to 2010 range is when he, maybe when the Lakers, I don't know, God, I think this is when they beat the Celtics, which I've, it's for the out. most part, successfully Black, removed from out. my memory as if it never yeah. happened. <laughs> um, I was actually at game five when Oof. they won and then they lost the next two yeah, uh, at that's, LA. That's fine. awful. Um, so... I, yeah, don't want to talk about that. But <laughs> when they won, I think he uh, met a world piece, thanked his psychiatrist or psychologist, yep. something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that was around, you know, 2009, 10, something around that range. And Brandon Marshall came out around 2011 with this. So he's one of the first athletes to really, you know, put his, you know, put his experience on display. And I know he got a lot of flack from people because of what he was going through, the nature of how it transpired well, mm -hmm. before he got the help he needed. Yeah. Um, and so to, to go through what he went through and to be a voice then and now, I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just awesome. So I think that's, that was a takeaway for me. Yeah. And I think it speaks to, again, we, we've talked about media as it relates to sports, you know, pretty, you know, a lot, but yeah. again, another, another example of how someone going through mental illness issues are seen as like this terrible person I think that they like dragged him through the mud and some mm -hmm. of the stuff he brought on himself he's been pretty outspoken about that he's also yeah. been outspoken he, he tries not to dwell on things that have happened that were not that were negative and tries to focus on what he can control now and yeah. moving forward which I think is a good mindset to have um, but again just another another example of how someone who's really really struggling and media outlets just being like well let me capture this so I can create this terrible narrative of this person which I think just contributes to, to more mental illness and, and contributes to that whole piece so yeah no absolutely and i think he you had mentioned that um you know he he at one point he kind of had this epiphany that that his true purpose is not football uh and and you know that's just his platform right mm -hmm. and i think it seemed like reading his comments when he realized that was when he was at mclean mm -hmm. uh, so he went to mclean hospital i think from what i read it sounds like he went to therapy for like four years before going to mclean and this kind of speaks to how with with borderline personality disorder you can treat that at times in an outpatient capacity, right? Like, you know, once or twice a week therapy with an outpatient therapist without mm -hmm. going to official program. But there are a lot of times where that's not enough. Yeah. Um, either you need more wraparound services and the more intense, you know, daily kind of services and or you need a group component or that kind of thing, which we're going to get into a little mm -hmm. bit. So at some point, you know, he went to therapy for four years and was clearly just still struggling and knew it. 
Um, and then he ended up at McLean. You know, we're pretty biased to McLean being a great place because we're we you know work in the greater Boston area, and McLean is very well known mm-hmm. uh, specifically for borderline personality disorder, yeah. but a couple other issues strong as programs. Well. Yeah. yeah, very strong programs, and it, and you know they're. Um, you know, usually residential programs live in, but not all of them. Some of them are uh, day programs or outpatient, but most of them are the really good ones are you, you stay there mm-hmm. and they have a team and there's, and there's people, other people struggling with the same issue there. So he went there and got, I think that's where he first got the accurate diagnosis. Yeah. So clearly this was, he was going to therapy for four years and was not correctly diagnosed, um, which it's hard to know why that happened. I mean, sometimes this stuff is just hidden and you can't tell. Yeah. Um, but so it was good that he, he got connected to the right, uh, treatment and he mentioned that it kind of changed his life. He said Dr. Gunderson changed my life, saved my life, and now he's working through me to save others. Um, you know, he mentions how at McLean he learned how to, that communication was a skill, an art form that was supposed to be taught, and that we didn't have that growing up. So to me, it it, it was just awesome to hear that because he made the connection between like, look, this isn't something I should have known. I wasn't taught this stuff growing up. I didn't know the diagnosis I have. I didn't know the skills required to deal with this kind of thing. How would you, right? You right. were born with this kind of information. Right. And he learned, he clearly learned how to self-regulate. And in my opinion, the, the most important part was getting to the root of his emotion. I think he talks about how key that is. How often do we see that people are, they're just, they're cutting the surface level stuff, but they're not really like the, they're treating the simp, uh, the, you know, the, the behavior and not really the root of the problem that's kind of driving continued behavior. Right. And it leads to nothing changing, right? right. Um, so that kind of stood out to me. Anything that stood out about his McLean experience to you? Yeah, the group component, I think, was what really stood out. Because I think, um, you know, we haven't really spoken too much about, like, group therapy. And there's obviously, you know, we, we deal mo- in individual pieces. Mm-hmm. We've done, we have run groups in the past, but for the most part, it's individual. And I think it brought up a good point. Just, I think group therapy really worked well for him to be able to, see other people having a similar type of experience and hear other people mention things that he was probably experiencing. There's, there's, there's value to that, especially with borderline. Um, but I also brought up the good point of like how there are many, many types of treatment modalities and, um, like either individual group, you know, art, there's lots of different Mm -hmm. ways to sort of treat. And I thought it was a good, um, a good reminder that, you know, it's not necessarily like individual one-on-one is not always like the best approach for, for treatment and pieces like that. There are other options of things to be, um, to be exploring. And, um, McLean, obviously, yeah, we were, we're biased, but it, it, the results speak for themselves of what they're able to do there. And they have one of the best programs for BPD or bipolar, um, uh, sorry, borderline personality disorder mm-hmm. and group really helped him be able to sort of uncover some of the stuff that he'd been going through and then be able to articulate to a group of people. So I think that that really helped him with his work with Dr. Gunderson as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this this kind of makes me think of just that how, you know, diagnosis, we, we tend to not fixate on diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. We think that at times it's important and yeah. a lot of times it's overly fixated on and not necessary. Like a lot of people don't necessarily fit a criteria for a diagnosis, but doesn't mean they're not struggling with the, just the stuff that we all go through in life on different levels. And so we tend to, you know, when diagnosis is relevant, we're going to, we're going to get the right one, right. As clinicians. And then a lot of times people don't need that type of thing and it's unhelpful or it's overdiagnosed. We've talked about past episodes, how those terms, those diagnostic terms, like, like bipolar or like uh, OCD are like thrown out with no real, uh, you know, criteria for that to say that accurately and it's just tossed around way too loosely. So I think we want to kind of toe the line. I think it's really important to recognize the the times when, you know, people are throwing out terms way too loosely without being having the information to back it up. And then there's other times where diagnosis is crucial. I mean, I think for obvious reasons, he even speaks to this. Like, 
if you have a certain diagnosis, you really have to make sure that, that you're aware of what it is mm-hmm. because otherwise you're not going to get connected to the right treatment. And he, he speaks to how it was a relief because he knew he was one step closer to solving something that yeah. he'd clearly been struggling to, to solve for a long time. We see this a lot with ADHD, right? One of the, the greatest parts about an accurate diagnosis for ADHD is that the people who have it are finally able to be like, that's what's been going on the whole time. Like, mm-hmm. okay, now that I understand that, it's much easier to understand how to move forward and get help. It's much easier to not blame myself, like yeah. thinking there's something wrong with me. Yep. Um, because a, a lot of this stuff is just, look, if your brain works a certain way, some of these things are going to happen, right? And that's not about stigmatizing the person. It's about recognizing that everyone's brain works a little bit differently, yep. and it might position you to struggle with some of these things. And the most important thing is to identify what that is yep. and get the right help. Figure out how your brain works and then how to manage it. That's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's what stands out. You know, we, we chose not to put that, um, you know, borderline personality sort of in the title of this because he has said specifically, I do not want to be identified with mm-hmm. my diagnosis. I right. know this was 2011. I've moved forward. I'm helping other people with mental health. Um, so we don't, we, we left it out of the title for obvious reasons. And we, but we also want to mention that, you know, for him, it was obviously crucial that he got that accurate diagnosis because mm-hmm. it led him to get the help he really needed. Um, another takeaway I had was just like his advice to others. It came through, I think it was in a video he did with Matt Barnes, who's also a former, a uh, former NBA player. NBA. Um, and uh, the things he said was one, have a game plan and be intentional with mental health. I think that doesn't always happen, right? People sort of just take mental health as it comes, but they're, they're less like in, in, there's no intent behind what they do when compared to physical health. He even talks about this as an athlete. Like I had my routine with what I was doing from a physical standpoint, when he started getting better, he started doing the same thing with mental health, like being very intentional about his mental fitness and yep. about the strategies he was doing yep. to, to get to and stay in a good place. Uh, he also refers to it as like making deposits for mental health, which I thought was kind of cool, right? Thinking about it from a financial standpoint, you're, you're investing in yourself, you're protect, you're, the more you invest in your mental fitness and your mental health, you know, you're, you're, it's like depositing in a bank, right? Mm-hmm. You, you have those funds for later on so that when life hits you, you can withdraw that and that's going to guard against being broke, right? right? I think that's like, I love the fact that he used that, that analogy. And then he talked about getting the tools you need. You know, we look, we look for tools for everything else we're doing. When an athlete's trying to perform at the highest level, they're going to look for the right equipment. And yet people don't often do it with mental health. No. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, his advice to others, I thought really came through in terms of um, the way he put it, I found very helpful. And I think if other people are listening to him, they would find it helpful as well. We always try to do that in our in our episodes, try to f- put thing in, things into terms that people can kind of take with them and, yeah. and put to good use. So I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, my last takeaway for, for Brandon Marshall is just how he talks about his family approach, which I think is awesome. Like he said uh, that him and his wife have taught their children communication, validation, and meditation, which they call superpowers to deal with emotions, which I just love that. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, lo- I think you recognize how important it is, you know, this... Mental health is is hereditary in so many different ways, and some of it is you know um, you know at a you know, neurological DNA level that kind of thing mm-hmm. physical, but a lot of it it's like what are you taught right yep. like these things or shown or shown or right yeah. yeah model model behavior mm-hmm. are you as parents are you passing down the right examples of how to cope with life and deal with things are you passing down the wrong ones or somewhere in between clearly he is passing down the right ones to his kids which is just so awesome because it's going to position them to. Um, you know, have a, I mean, I think all parents are trying to position their kids to have a successful and happy life as adults. And I think that to me, you know, to, to call those superpowers and position his kids to learn how to deal with their emotions is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to, um, you know, toss a question to you, John, because I think through a lot of our episodes, you know, one thing that seems to kind of keep coming back is keep coming up is 
that there's just this huge connection between mental health and physical health. You know, with with mental, quote unquote, mental health issues or mental Mm -hmm. illness issues, things like that, there's always a physical component, Mm -hmm. right? Or multiple physical components in terms of like what affects it or how it shows or that kind of thing. And with physical health, I think there's a lot of mental health components in terms of how it affects the person or that kind of thing. Yep. So my question to you is like, it's all connected. At what point are we just going to refer to it as as one thing? I think we have to be in, intentionally focused on mental health to get it to the same level as physical health because it's still not there yet mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the stigma being reduced and people being as open and aware about mental health as they are about physical health. Is there a point that we get to in the future where if we keep doing that, it's actually going to work against us? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think the way that I see it is I see health as sort of like the umbrella, right, of everything, and physical health and mental health fall with within mm-hmm. with underneath that. Mm-hmm. And I think that hopefully the goal would be that we are discussing physical health the same way that we're describing mental health, and 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 the way that I break it down is sort of like with with physical health we talk about like just physical health or physical hygiene. We also talk about like physical illness and treatment, right? Mm-hmm. So physical health is what are you doing to, for yourself proactively or hygiene for yourself to like keep your body functioning properly, right? Are you exercising? Are you eating relatively well? Um, are you brushing your teeth? You know, grooming yourself, yeah. that type of showering, stuff. showering, yeah. those types of very, if you were to ask anybody about those things, about their hygiene practices, people wouldn't be like, oh yeah, that's something maybe I do or don't do. It's not a question of whether you do those things. Those are just things that you just, people just do. Yeah. Um, and then with physical treatment, same thing. If you break a leg, you go to treatment. If you, something happens, injury, whatever, you go to treatment. And I think the same process is needs to happen with mental health, but it's still not in the same place. And I think that one of the things with describing both of them as health might help to elevate mental health to the same, like you mentioned, the same type of conversation to have, like we're having with physical health. And so that the processes are the same with mental health. There's mental health and hygiene, right? Mm-hmm. What are you doing on a proactive basis? Are you, uh, Brandon Marshall talks a lot about journaling, right? Yep. We talk about it all the time, mm-hmm. but it's not seen as the same as like brushing your teeth yeah. or taking a shower. But or affirmation work, or goal setting, or fear setting, or purpose, like any of those sort of like mental health hygiene things, self-care, those are always sort of like rolled their eyes at or things like that. But it's, it needs to be seen as the same as, same as hygiene, mental health hygiene. What are you doing for yourself to keep your mind clean? And then there's mental illness and treatment. Same thing as if you were to break a leg, or if you were to have some sort of mental illness, whether it be borderline or we talked about bipolar in our previous episode or depression or whatever you go and you get treatment mm-hmm. and you get better mm-hmm. and i think that the the process is different it's a little bit you know what you do is a little bit different um to to feed those things but you know same thing with physical with nutrition what are you putting in your body that's going to help it function the same way and with mental health what are you feeding your mind yeah, yeah. to help you kind of do that it's the same thing and i'm hoping that we can get to the point where the mental health hygiene practices are seen as just daily habits yeah. like these are just yeah. things that we just you just do you yeah. wake up you do breath training you write your goals out write in a journal it's 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 seen as the same as brushing your teeth yeah. or whatever and i think that's that's where i'm hoping that having health as the main umbrella can help elevate mental health to the same capacity mm-hmm. but i do still see value in seeing them as separate yep. Yep. but under the same sort of umbrella of of health because i do think that they're both connected that way yeah i think that's a great way to put it and especially the example of, of brushing your teeth because i think it you know 
if you don't brush your teeth for a certain amount of time, like the issues might not show up right away. Mm -hmm. um, but down the line, you know, you're going to get cavities and it yep. may impact other issues with physical health and things like that. It's going to yep. show up um, maybe out of the seemingly out of the blue. <laughs> but the, the you know, the groundwork was being laid yeah. for that over weeks or months of not doing it. Right. I think mental health is kind of the same way. If you're not, um, you know, making those deposits like Brandon Marshall talks about you are leaving yourself very, very vulnerable because life stuff is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And when it happens, have you put in the proactive kind of things? Yep. And so I agree with you. I think that we're still at a place where we need to we need to talk about mental health specifically to get it to the level where it's kind of considered an equal part under that umbrella. Mm -hmm. And then maybe when we're at a certain point, we can feel like it's safely there and, and, and not have to do that. But we'll see when we get there. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to shift to the mental health topic. We are going to talk a little bit about borderline personality disorder today. So I want to kick it to you, John. Where would you start with with describing that um, you know that diagnosis or that mental health topic? Yeah. So I kind of want to again. I kind of want to go through a little bit of the like the diagnostic criteria, so people have a like the correct language mm -hmm. to refer to when they're talking about borderline. Um, we don't hear it. You know, we've talked about in previous episodes like the flippant use of diagnosis to sort of describe like a mood or an emotion, have nothing, but having no real relevance to what is actually going on. I don't notice that as much with with borderline. Um, but accurate diagnosis is really important um, for the for the reasons that you mentioned. I think with Brandon, he talks about like you said like he had this big sigh of relief, like finally I understand what's going on mm -hmm. and why these things are happening. So, um, just kind of kind of go run through some of these pieces that we um, that we see. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's sort of there's sort of nine criteria for it. And um, if you sort of are, I think it's f yeah five five indicating or five criteria to re we'll we'll reach a level for diagnostic. Um, so the the big one is sort of a a lot of effort to either avoid a real or imagined abandonment, mm -hmm. right? So that's that's always a big one with borderline yeah. is the the concept of abandonment, of perceived abandonment. And so I'm going to push you away or I'm going to work super hard to get close, but not really. And then it's going to push away. So that's a big one that we usually well, see. And ironically, like people, when they fear abandonment and yet their behavior um, makes it a guarantee that abandonment is going to happen. It's yeah. like this self-fulfilling prophecy or this right. self-sabotage that people with borderline personality sort of really struggle with. They fear abandonment so much that all of a sudden it it dictates their behavior to actually make that the most likely outcome. Right. Yeah. yeah they dive in so much yeah. that you actually push that person away because yes. they're overwhelming. Yep. And then sort of like, well, I tried to connect and then I couldn't connect. Yep. And then it's sort of that, that spiral. So exactly. um, then another one is sort of a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships, um, sort of going from one extreme to the, to the next, um, like idealizing something of like, this is it. And then devaluing something. So like the, the back and forth sort of, of like, this is, this is perfect. And then like, no, this is, this is the worst thing ever. Um, and that sort of an unstable piece of like those intense feelings around that. Yeah. So that, that relates to, there's a book on, um, on borderline personality disorder for people, for family members typically, and but also friends of, of someone that has it. And it's called Walking on Eggshells. And that's, I mean, the title is self-explanatory. It's mm -hmm. like the, the the cycle between someone with borderline personality disorder idealizing one, one day or one moment and then devaluing the same person almost immediately mm -hmm. on the flip side. It just leads to this kind of like, where do I stand? And you, you feel like you have to walk on eggshells with that person because you never know where you stand. It's always flipping from one side to the next. Right, you never know what you're going to get. So you're just like, constantly cautious around what am, am I going to say the wrong thing that's going to blow this person correct. up or not. Correct. And I think that, I think that is what often leads to, because those are, if you could describe those as two poles almost, right? Mm -hmm. Idealizing and devaluing. It's very much bipolar. Mm -hmm. You tend to see this get misdiagnosed as bipolar quite a bit because Agreed. people see the person swinging so much drastically to think, oh, that, that, that far of a jump, you right. must be bipolar. Right. And it's not the same thing. It's not. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, so again, identity seems to be obviously an issue with this too. And there's a lot of like self-image and self-esteem, which, which, which plays out in a lot of other diagnostic pieces, but mm-hmm. that's one that, that, that's so it's very unstable. It's very, very critical, um, and, and pieces that way. Um, and then the next one is impulsivity and it's usually in two different areas. So like massive spending, um, sexual exploitations, mm-hmm. substance misuse, reckless decision-making, binge, like it's sort of, um, you know, impulsivity in those different risk taking risk taking behaviors, behaviors yeah, yeah. basically. Um, and usually wanting at least two two of those areas um and it, that they're self damaging. Mm-hmm. Um and then sort of the recurrent suicidal behavior, whether it's um gestures or um threats, um th- those types of things or self harm, that types that some of that stuff starts to come into play. Yeah. Um and then the instability in mood, we talked a little bit about about that st- stuff too. So um you know, irritability, uh, high, heightened, you know, heightened places of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it's usually lasting for like hours, if not days. Yeah, so yeah. rather than sort of like a highly anxious moment for a few moments, it's like a, an extended period of time um, that usually happens. Um, chronic feelings of emptiness, which again, to your point, like that might look like depression, right? That might look, so when you're talking about accurate diagnostics, it could be like, oh, is this person depressed mm-hmm. or bipolar? Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's one of the symptoms that can kind of be you know, maybe misunderstood if not given the fuller picture. Um, and then intense, um, anger or difficulty controlling anger. That's another one that usually you see of like one of those flippant behavior pieces of like now all of a sudden they are intensely, intensely Mm -hmm, anger mm -hmm. or angry. Um, and like some, so a lot of times that could be physical fights that could just be verbal arguing. Um, but that's, that's one of the pieces there. Um, and then sort of like, potentially dissociative symptoms um and like paranoid difficulties Mm -hmm. so like like paranoid of what people how people are going to react to you or when it comes to relationships that this person's going to do this and this person's going to do that have it's like a heightened sense of paranoia so yeah because that fear of abandonment the fear of abandonment plays through so that's sort of like the diagnostic criteria for borderline and like you said i think it's really important to get a firm understanding for diagnosis because then you can treat accordingly. Um, because like you mentioned before with bipolar, you would want to use medication as a form of treatment, but for borderline you don't necessarily. And so if you were to give someone with borderline an antipsychotic, you could have yeah. a, you could have a really, really um, bad yeah. outcome yeah. from that. So um, that's why it's just, so, that's why we, we spend the time. Sorry. I know it's probably a little bit boring for listeners to go through the diagnostic criteria, but I think it's really important for listeners to hear that so they can start to understand the, the, the differences between the diagnosis so they can really get an accurate picture of what we're, what we're talking about. Yeah. And I mean, as you describe it, you know, it, it, what comes through is just how difficult it is for everybody involved. I mean, for the person dealing with it, it is yeah. like a, a very, very unhappy, difficult, traumatic existence to have to like swing as that much as they yeah. do in different ways, whether it comes to mood or impulsivity and decision making and things like that. Yeah. And obviously for the people in their life, it's extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, just the position they are put in constantly, not knowing where they stand, the walking on eggshells thing really comes through. Yeah. And I, w- I mean, I don't know this, but I know for for guys, it tends to be overdiagnosed for women. Mm-hmm. I know that bo- yep. uh, borderline personality disorder. And I think for guys, they tend to be thrown into the antisocial, uh, either given the bipolar tag or thrown, which yeah. is incorrect, or antisocial personality disorder. And right. I think that's not accurate a lot of times because the people with borderline um, are affected by the stuff that they do to people. They care. It bothers them. They right. can't control it right. and they regret it. 
but it, it upsets them what they do to people. Someone with antisocial personality disorder wouldn't would have no affect about that, or like they wouldn't care, right? It wouldn't right. matter that it they bothered somebody or that it impacted their life negatively or that kind yeah. of thing. They would just like roll with it, and not not seem to give a you know what. Yeah. So, and for listeners, antisocial is sort of what you probably understand as like sociopath, right? Yeah. So yep. there's the, the, that the actual diagnostic, right? Like the actual diagnosis for sociopath is antisocial yep. so for people listening that's kind of what, that's what we were talking about yeah and got you know guys a lot of times are given uh, when they're struggling with some of these things are given yep. that per- personality disorder, disorder right. diagnosis incorrectly yep. um you know when it really may be borderline and that makes a difference right because yeah. to, to your point they care about the outcomes of, of those relationships and with antisocial there's no feeling associated with those types of things and there's also usually sometimes a form of manipulation for that yep. and with borderline it, it's not a sense of they're not doing necessarily these things to, to for that outcome, they're just not in control of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or it's the, the the opposite side. Like they're right. so afraid of losing the person right. that they're that they overextend. That they over, and then, yeah, and yeah. then lose them anyway. Exactly. Yep. So, in terms of treatment, I mean, obviously, like we just discussed, accurate diagnosis is always key mm-hmm. for this kind of thing. Um, you know, medication I think can be an option, but typically not uh, mm-hmm. the primary thing. Therapy is definitely the primary approach. Um, tr- I think trauma informed care is really important because, yep. as we've discussed, with a lot of mental health situa- issues or mental illness uh, uh, situations. You know, there's there's often a lot of trauma in these people's background, uh, and maybe there isn't, but it, it, it's important to scan for that and screen for that kind of stuff to know mm-hmm. how that may be impacting the situation. Um, and then, I mean, from what I've kind of always like read about, um, you know, borderline personality disorder and the treatment, it, it it tends to require intense individual therapy and sometimes gr- a group component, although that can be risky, uh, as you mentioned, John. Um, typically, the approach is is what's called DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy. We work a lot more with CBT. I mean, we've done some DBT work because yep. um, it, it started out, by, um, it was created by someone uh, called named Marsha Linehan, who's a, um, I think she's a psychologist, correct? Mm-hmm. And she actually has borderline personality or had borderline personality disorder and developed this uh, dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT method to treat that issue. Since then, it's been used for a lot of different mental health issues, not just borderline right. personality disorder. Um, but it's basically about, you know, that knowing that things are connected and change is constant um, it's about resolving the contradiction between self-acceptance and the simultaneous need for change. Yeah. And then there's kind of like acceptance and change through four areas of daily skill building. I mean, that's how I kind of look at, at DBT. The four areas of daily skill building are core mindfulness, distress tolerance, mm-hmm. interpersonal effectiveness, and emotion emotional regulation. regulation. Um, so those are the four four areas that DBT tends to target. And a lot of times DBT can be helpful uh, in individual and group format, uh, mm-hmm. especially when borderline personality disorder is at a significant uh, degree where it's really kind of debilitating for the person and ruining yeah. all the relationships in their life. I think McLean Hospital, which we mentioned earlier, is is known for their DBT uh, mm-hmm. or their DBT-based borderline personality disorder program, program yeah. which has you know wraparound services and individual and group therapy each day and, yep. and that kind of thing. Um, so that is uh, the mental health topic for today. Um, we want to just remind everyone who's listening, if you can, subscribe to, to the Grim Drive Podcast on YouTube. You can go into YouTube and just search the Grim Drive Podcast and click subscribe. We're trying to get to 100 uh, subscribers. We're close. We want to get our own custom URL to make it easier for people to find this helpful information. Um, one other reminder, all helpful information that we discuss and links can be accessed in our show notes and on our website at GrimDrive.com. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Grim Dive Podcast today for this discussion about Brandon Marshall. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk about Jackie McMullen and mental health and sports media. Yeah.